1787, a passerby asked Ben Franklin what form of government the United States would have. Franklin responded, a republic, if you can keep it. This podcast will tell the stories of the people who work for that goal. While exploring this nation's fundamental problems, our hope is to show you that, together, we can all keep the republic. I'm Srija. And I'm David. This is If We Can Keep It, a podcast for the republic. Today, we'll be interviewing Katie Fahey, who in 2018 led a grassroots campaign to end partisan gerrymandering in Michigan. She encountered a well-organized and well-funded opposition, challenging her on the ground and in the courts. Despite systemic barriers and partisan onslaughts, what began with dozens of people in a single town hall became a statewide movement 14,000 people strong. Katie, her team, and her volunteers managed to put redistricting reform on Michigan's ballot. Together, this group, Voters Not Politicians, successfully passed their proposition to severely restrict partisan gerrymandering in Michigan. Now, Katie is the founder and executive director of The People, a nonpartisan organization dedicated to empowering people, not parties. For Katie, it seems to have always been about the people. In 2018, on the night the ballot passed, Katie spoke to an audience and reignited their hopes in the democratic system. The thing we proved is that we are our own saviors, Katie said. We, the people, can save ourselves. In this interview, we hope to tap into that spirit, that hope, to rediscover how we can be our own saviors, how we can keep our own republic. Thank you, Katie, for joining us. We're glad to have you. Thank you for having me. I'm so excited to be here. So we'd like to give you and our listeners just a quick primer on this interview structure and theme. We'll begin with your movement in Michigan to end partisan gerrymandering. Then we'll shift to your role with your organization, The People. We'll end with your hopes for the future and the issue areas you see as the most important for our democracy's health. All the while, we hope to focus on the themes of activism and hope in the face of a rigged system. So before your success with Voters Not Politicians, you were a graduate of Aquinas College working on sustainable business practices. What inspired your pivot to politics? So I always cared in general about politics, but I I cared more so, I guess, about voting or civic duty. I was really into like local elections, the Green Commissioner race in 2016 I was following. It has a lot to do with the environment. And we live in a city with uh, next to the Great Lakes. Um, but I also was really conscious of trying to think critically about what's the difference that I can make and when there's an opportunity of injustice, what what will I do to act? And I think there are a couple different turning points in 2016 from when I went to just thinking about gerrymandering every now and then and definitely thinking it was bad and that we should do something about it to actually being the person to say, well, I'm going to figure out how to do something about it. One of those things is definitely the Flint water crisis. Um, In Michigan, there was a law that was passed and the people of Michigan tried to overturn and our gerrymandered legislature put back in place called the emergency manager law. That law actually ended up leading to Flint switching its water source and poisoning thousands of people. And the response from our government was really appalling. It was basically a bunch of elected officials pointing fingers at each other saying either they didn't know or it wasn't their fault. And the last thing that was being done was real action to help make sure that kids could go to school and actually be able to drink the water. 
just sitting around and thinking about what I could do about that and wanting to prevent a future Flint water crisis from happening, I actually, in my own mind, kind of thought about gerrymandering and a way to try and get more accountability from our elected officials. Um, at the same time, I grew up without really talking about politics a lot. My family, I knew they voted, but we never even really talked about who voted for who. Uh, and same with my friends, actually. But then in 2016, something changed. I started going to family birthday parties and um, even just like out to eat with friends. And people were actually wanting to talk about politics and talking about who they were going to vote for. And they got registered to vote. And I was just so excited people actually wanted to vote. And it wasn't just me begging them <laughs> to, to go and show up to the polls. They did a lot of listening. And I saw that the candidates my family and friends were really getting excited about tended to be either Bernie Sanders or Donald Trump. And when I tried to think about, you know, what do they maybe have in common as I was listening to my friends and family, I kept hearing that basically people wanted a really big change to the political system. They were looking for somebody who could have the political revolution or could drain the swamp of getting rid of the corruption. And then after the election was over, a lot of the same friends and family, they, they kind of turned more vicious now that there was a winner, it was more of a, you know, I can't believe you voted that way, or I can't believe you voted that way. And I tried to say, you know, I really hope we can keep talking about politics, not just in four years when we're electing uh, or reelecting the president. But what if we could focus on that changing the system? And what if there was something we could do beyond just voting for one person? What about gerrymandering? Katie, I really admire that sense of optimism that we should look for similarities instead of uh, differences that divide us as a country. And how do you maintain that optimism um, in, a pl- in a climate that is so, uh, I guess, fueled uh, with this kind of anger? It's not always easy. And I think one of the hardest parts is people are so used to the cynicism. And also, I'd say, especially on social media, more attacking each other. It's, it's not often that people are coming on with like a genuine if they're putting a question out there, it's not often, sometimes it can be, but if they're more saying their political point of view and not necessarily looking for somebody to change their mind. And I think that's what you have to get beyond. If you can get to a point where people can actually listen to each other, where when you ask, you know, why do you believe this? You aren't thinking about how you can persuade them to think like you. You're more just trying to really hear what they're saying. That's when change is possible. And I think that's when you hear the nuances of, you know, because I want a system that I can trust. Or, you know, I want a system where every voter's vote is counted regardless of who they voted for. These are common American values that I heard over and over again. And now that I've started working even outside of Michigan, I continue to hear really are at the heart of a lot of our concerns, but get lost in a lot of the headlines, or especially when we start talking about one political party versus another. And I think when you can get back down to though, what is it we're fighting for? And then letting us, the people of our country, be involved in creating the solution towards that. That's when I think the magic happens. So seeing that firsthand has helped keep me optimistic um, in those experiences. So remaining optimistic in the face of those systemic barriers and almost party strife and in a way something that transcends party strife too, just between people altogether. In remaining optimistic about that, how do you characterize those systemic problems that are currently facing others? 
think there's a, a lot of systemic problems, but I do think if I was to like take the highest category possible, I think our political system over time has changed the incentives for how it works. So what I mean by that is I think over time, both political parties as well as special interests, whether they're corporations or even nonprofit organizations, have tried to change the basic rules of how our elections are run, how people get elected, how officials can govern. They've tried to change those rules to make it work better for them. But the problem is when you're trying to make the system work, you know, just better for Democrats, just better for Republicans, or just better for the oil industry, or just better for um, even like uh, child hunger. When you're just thinking about that tinier part of the population or social interest group, then the whole system starts to do just that, work better for some people, but not for everybody. And that's what I think is at the heart of systemic change is if we can get back to basics, get back to creating an election system that looks out for all voters and trying to make sure every community can have its voice heard in its state capital, as well as in Washington, D.C., have a representative they can actually hold accountable towards caring about them, not just caring about general interests or even national interests. We purposely have a democratic republic so we can elect a person who's supposed to look out for us, our you know, people in our neighborhood, our communities. I think that that's when real change can start to happen. But right now, the incentives are more towards how do I get reelected? And I get reelected based on polarization. I get reelected based on how much money I can raise. I get reelected by um, not compromising with people of a different political party so that when I'm in the primaries going against somebody else from my party, they can't say that I compromise with a Democrat or a Republican or whatever. And those are things I think if we can get back to basics around, we'll actually not only see politicians having to run campaigns differently, but they'll get, be getting elected differently. And we, as the people of our country, can hold them accountable in a different way. So how does gerrymandering fit into that picture? If we're going to have this democratic republic, this system where we have one person we can hold accountable and they're supposed to represent our community, then we need to hope that they actually, like, even physically can represent a community. Sometimes gerrymandering, you have, like, one eighth of this city and one tenth of this city and one third of this city, like just little piecemeals of folks who don't have a lot in common, um, yet somehow are supposed to all vie for the attention of one representative who theoretically goes and, and first of all, drive around their district to talk to them, but definitely go and actually represent them in the state and in uh, Washington, D.C., congressional member. Uh, gerrymandering, uh, I guess everybody listening to this would know, you know, the sense that it's once every 10 years, when our district lines get drawn for who's going to be our representative, you have everybody who's in those lines being in a community, in a sense, of looking towards the same representative to care about their voices and to deliver for them, their constituents. And what happens in gerrymandering is you have a lot of people trying to guarantee election results, guarantee either what political party or sometimes even which individual is going to be reelected. And the problem with that is then for us, the everyday citizens who are trying to hold that politician accountable and say, hey, you actually completely ignored my community or my school district or um, or you made campaign promises you didn't follow through on. When they aren't afraid of our votes, of us being able to unelect them because they didn't hold up their end of the bargain, that's when really our democracy is at a loss. And that's what gerrymandering does. It, it pretty much guarantees how people, it packs people together to try and guarantee, okay, maybe they won't like this particular Democrat, this particular 
particular Republican, but we can have a really smart, educated guess that the majority of people are still going to vote for a Democrat no matter what, or a Republican no, no matter what. And that's, uh, yeah, I think that's at the heart of it. Katie, I find it really interesting how you're able to connect these um, hot button issues such as healthcare, immigration, the Flint white water crisis, to uh, democracy at its core and election reform, right? So uh, what was it that um, connected uh, Flint, the, the crisis that you just described, and gerrymandering? Yeah, I think I was uh, paying attention to local politics, um, listening to the radio, and uh the Flint water crisis was a, a big, the emergency manager law, sorry, it was a big deal. The emergency manager law was put into place by our legislature and people weren't happy with it. Basically, it took away local decision-making rights from cities if they were in financial trouble. Um, people didn't like it for a variety of reasons. One, they weren't voting for who that financial manager would be. So it was just appointed by the governor. So the mayor that they voted for, the city council that they voted for, all of their power got taken away and the governor got to choose who got that power. Folks did not like it because disproportionately communities of color were the only ones getting those emergency managers applied to them, even though there were also uh, financially distressed, primarily white communities, yet the same rules didn't seem to be applying. In Michigan, we have the ability to get rid of a law if we don't like it. You have it's it's very a, a large process. It costs a lot of money. You have to go and gather a bunch of petitions asking for a law to be removed. And then you actually have to vote on it. So it'll go to the general election and people will vote. So people did that. They gathered hundreds of thousands of signatures. They put it on the ballot and um, you know, over 50% of the people, I think it was closer to 70 almost, voted to get rid of this emergency manager law. But then our legislature, after just getting reelected, found a loophole saying that people, yes, can get rid of laws in Michigan unless there is a dollar amount associated with that law. So if there's something from the budget coming out of that, then actually the legislature, because the legislature is in charge of the budget, like like I said, a loophole, because the legislature is in charge of the budget, people can't get rid of that because then like, it could cause a lot of chaos for what we can pay for and what it won't. They found that loophole and they passed the emergency uh, manager law now with a budget line item so that they knew it was repeal proof. And it was the first thing they did once getting elected. And for me, it was like, you just got a mandate from the people of the state that we don't like this. And the first thing you do is that. And that was just the tipping point. Because once they found out that there was a loophole, they started applying that loophole to literally every single bill they were passing, even if it was only a $5, it's called an appropriation. They do a $5 appropriation on a bill so that people can overcommit on crazy things that like, you know, probably aren't controversial, but they're just passing the laws. And the attitude that that signaled of, you know what, we're your elected officials and we're going to do what we want anyways. That was kind of a breaking point for me, seeing just how disingenuous folks were that they could use us for a vote or use us for a donation email yeah, as soon as they get elected, they're going to do everything in their power to make it so that even if we really don't like what they're doing, there's nothing they can do about it. It felt the opposite of what our democracy should be. And I think that's why for me, I I had known about gerrymandering. One of the reasons why is because in uh, Michigan, almost every election, the popular vote is... Um, 
isn't the uh, isn't the doesn't end up whatever the popular vote goes towards. I'm not explaining this really great. Whatever the popular vote goes towards, whatever party that is, they tend to not actually be the party in charge at the end of the election. So for about 20 years, you know, Republicans would actually get more votes than Democrats, yet Democrats were leading the state. And then for about the past 30 years, it was the opposite. Democrats would get more votes, yet you'd have a Republican supermajority passing laws in the state. We had a governor who was a very moderate Republican, and he was pretty much, uh, and we, and then we had a House and a Senate, those very extreme, um, happened to be Republican, like I said, Democrats did it before, but the governor acted as this moderator of any of our laws being passed, and he actually fought a lot with our legislature because the types of laws they were trying to pass were so extreme, and a governor gets elected based on a popular vote. So governor can't be as extreme because he doesn't have that gerrymandered insulation. I think just watching all of that happen, seeing the laws be put together and just seeing that attitude, I, I remembered that part of the reason why you could have the people mandating for one party or a switch in power or even for a law to be changed and yet it then gets ignored is gerrymandering and is redistricting. And so then I thought about, you know, long term, if we want our elected officials to be accountable to us, regardless of what party we're a part of. We really do need our votes to be more of a threat that if you that if we like you, we can elect you. But also if we don't like you, we can unelect you. I think that mindset you talked about earlier of these politicians who are elected and then go on to pass those appropriation bills with five dollars on them in order to make them repeal proof. I think the mindset you described for that, there's nothing you the people can do about it, is so contrary to the democratic hopes we hope we, we have for our country. And I would assume that they were almost of that mindset all the time. And so you talked about your anger and how disingenuous this all was. So you have that, that spirit to move forward and start doing something about it. But were there barriers to getting involved in the political sphere to start combating this? Were those barriers mental, societal, systemic? A hundred percent. Yeah. I mean, I think so. I, I made this Facebook post that said, hey, I want to end gerrymandering in Michigan. If you want to help, let me know a smiley face with the emoji. Got to have this emoji. Very key. Um, I, I personally did not think that would lead to me leading an effort to amend our state constitution to end gerrymandering. I really didn't. And what's funny is for people who are on social media, uh, or sometimes there's other apps that do this, but there's actually a thing that shows you like what you posted on this day, like two years ago, three years ago, four years ago. They actually had started down this path of me asking about money and gerrymandering, and we were probably six months into like several hundred of us really working on this all the time. The thing that hopped up on that, you know, what you did three years ago was almost the exact same Facebook post. It said, hey guys, I really wanna do something about gerrymandering, who wants to help? Here's this article about gerrymandering. Not a single person even liked it. And I didn't do anything about it. It's not like I was like, oh yeah, so I'm gonna just go and do this now. What really was the difference for even me personally was seeing that other people cared too. So there was this moment, I, I made this post, I go to work, check my social media at lunchtime. It wasn't even huge. It was probably like 30 people. This just highlights how unpopular I am. Like it was like probably 30 people, but like with like seven or eight comments. And normally like people might like something, but they aren't like commenting and really trying to engage. And there are all these people saying, I'm in, I've cared about this for a long time. And I share this message with other people, blah, blah, blah. I was like, okay, yeah, this is different. This is really different. And I'm really excited that people care. 
And for me, seeing that I wasn't alone, it was probably one of the first times that I realized like there are other people who, yes, cared about the presidential election, but that also see that there's more we can do than just vote for the president. And that's kind of the personal attitude I had at the time. Was like, does anybody else think there's more really important things we can also discuss? Um, but so then once we started, what was really interesting was that there were a lot of groups on their websites that said, uh, hey, we want to end gerrymandering. If you want to help, let us know, basically the equivalent. They started reaching out to a lot of them. And what I quickly realized is there were a lot of groups that had done a lot of great work for a long time, but most of them did not know how to use the internet as an organizing tool is a way to put it. So the fact that I had like several hundred people, we had met on Facebook, we were all doing research projects online, but I think they just didn't know what that meant. And they're a little bit like, yeah, that's great. We see that things get likes all the time, but like, are you guys really doing anything substantial? And so from like an institutional standpoint, organizations who traditionally make change in our state, they're kind of dismissive and trying to prove to them that, yes, maybe we didn't do this for a day job, but we really did care. And we really were serious about helping make sure that we tried to end gerrymandering in our state. That was a really big barrier, both around the stories of what is possible, how is change made, but also of being able to show that just because you haven't navigated the political process before doesn't mean you have something meaningful. If you do. And then I would just also add that in general, <laughs> the process is complicated. So in our state, thankfully, we can bring a ballot initiative, meaning if we write constitutional language, gather a bunch of signatures, we can then actually have the people of our state vote on that. Uh, but even to start doing that, there's a thing called a ballot question committee, and you have to know all the campaign finance laws and not miss filing deadlines. And there was also like a, a webinar that you had to attend, but you had to guarantee 17 people would be on it. And it had to be at 9am when all of us had day jobs. <laughs> it took like a vaca vacation day from work to like listen to this webinar on our Secretary of State's website. Like I was lucky I could take a vacation day. Like it might seem like a really minor barrier, but actually it was really huge because we legally couldn't proceed unless we knew how to do this. And I started talking to people about, you know, how have you done this, whatever. They they all pretty much said, well, usually I just pay somebody to do it for me. And that's where I was like, well, uh, I'm actually like at the time I was getting my master's and trying to work full time and uh, doing like, you know, other volunteer activities. I was like, I can't. Uh, I also think just because I'm a regular citizen, I should be able to still try and partake in this process. So how do we navigate that? And really in the beginning, I'd say those were the biggest kind of that knowledge gap, that ability for people to take you seriously and the ability for people to understand that, like, just because traditionally everyday citizens didn't come together or meet online to try and make change, it didn't mean that it wasn't possible, changing the kind of that story that everybody was telling them. Yeah, I completely uh, empathize with uh, the idea that you have to have a webinar at 9 a.m. on a work day. I think a lot of these uh, state legislatures, even when they put up town halls, they'll, they'll do it on a work day in the middle of the afternoon when no one's available, right? And that's uh, it's pretty frustrating for an average voter. Completely. But, and we yeah. saw that actually throughout the Board of Canvassers um, is an entity that you have to get approval from. And you know, we saw that throughout. There was a meeting at 10 a.m., there's a meeting at 11 a.m., and, and even just the location was in our state capital, Lansing, which does happen to be in the middle of the state. But we had some folks who were volunteering um, like 10 hours away, and there wasn't a way for them to give testimony digitally 
um, they had to come in person, which at the time was a, a very big barrier. And hopefully something that I think if there's good news coming out of the pandemic, that's changing what that can look like and what the possibility of public comment can be, but definitely was a barrier at the time. I, I completely agree about that. I mean, thinking about just how this interview is possible, usually a podcast would be conducted in a recording studio of some kind, but it's, it's wonderful to know that, that there are perhaps possibilities in the future for the kind of, reform and communication that it would allow people to travel distances and communicate. <laughs> Even with the Facebook post, I mean, one of the things that happened almost immediately is we had people from almost every corner of our state, like our state is pretty large. And we had people from really rural parts, really urban parts, like west side, east side, north side, south side, like everywhere in a matter of hours. And I think even a couple of years ago, like, I don't know how you would have done that if you didn't already know each other, or there wasn't already that infrastructure. So I, so I think the possibilities of how can we even organize or make sure that we're taking collective action is, uh, the possibilities are really exciting right now. I, I think that's so interesting because earlier you stated that when you were reaching out to groups, they were almost dismissive of your online organization of how you were able to use Facebook and other social media sites to garner attention and gather people. How, do you think this remains an untapped source of organizing? And at some point, how do you think that needs to be adapted? I mean, interest is one thing, like people say, oh, you can get any likes for anything, but interest is one thing. How do you drive that interest into a functioning group? I I do think that it's still a little untapped. Um, part of what we were fighting for for redistricting was, of course, a fair way for these lines to be drawn. But part of what fairness meant in in our ability to try and restore trust with our political system. I mean, one one of the things that I heard across the state when we were talking about this was that people were unhappy with politics. They didn't trust politics. It's similar to what I was hearing from my friends who were like, we need a complete overhaul of this system because it's not working for me. And one of the themes of that is we are so left out of the quote unquote room where it happens, where decisions are made. It's a very opaque process. People don't know why decisions were made. They don't know how. They don't know who is a part of those conversations. And so transparency, the ability to be in the room, the ability to understand why a decision is being made. I think that's one of the keys to really being able to mobilize differently. I think a lot of our traditional institutions still operate very top down and very much like we need to control the message, we need to be in the room, make the decisions, and then we let people know what decisions were made instead of like an authentic relationship with the people who are impacted by those decisions, whether it's employees, if it's the company that we're talking about, or for us, for making a deciding to go and do a constitutional amendment to end gerrymandering. You know, there were a lot of great organizations again who had been talking about this for a long time, but the people who had really been in the room talking about, well, what would it mean for us to do this realistically were the heads of those organizations. They weren't the members of those organizations. And that's probably because they were afraid that then the opposition would hear and the opposition was very real. And then they'd maybe take them more seriously and they wouldn't be ready for that. I mean, I'm not saying that no conversation should ever be allowed to happen without everybody watching. But at the same time, it was so, so top down that I think it felt, it 
didn't feel aligned with the sense of urgency that so many people were feeling. You watch the news right now and you are like, there are 10 things I could go and try and like fix right now. The urgency that we feel to do something that there is really dire consequences with a continued broken system are very real. And yet our institutions are kind of set up for like, okay, that's great. Come to a meeting in a month. And then we'll kind of talk about what can happen there instead of like, you're absolutely right. And here's a way that we can go and make change together. Here's what we need to have happen. So for us, we needed to raise $40,000 to print petitions, which like I didn't have lying around and it could have been really scary. And we could have been like, yeah, we've got to figure that out and we will figure it out. But that wasn't the truth. We didn't figure it out. If we didn't raise that money, we weren't going to be able to print those petitions. So instead, we talked to our group of people who are showing up. Elda, um, it was on Facebook, so you can do like a recorded video. It's called Facebook Live. It shows you just like talking in real time and people can ask questions in real time. Then Facebook Live saying, hey guys, right now, if each of us could find four people to each give $10, we can not only pay for our petitions, but we also could pay for a lawyer and we need one of those too. But here's the reality and like, here's our idea for what we could do between now and then while we're raising money for these petitions. And that's when we started getting people coming up with more ideas and talking about their friends that they knew that were in the printing industry or talking about friends who knew people who could maybe give more than like $10, could give like $1,000. And that's how we ended up problem solving because it was an authentic interaction. It wasn't a let me crisis manage this for you. It was a, hey, we all want to end gerrymandering in our state and we all need to problem solve on this. And I think that that's different than just having video meetings. So I hope organizations don't stop with just video meetings and actually like letting people literally see but really change what engagement can look like and the amount of trust that they can give people that, you know, even if you aren't, haven't been in the political system, they still have networks, they still have skills that can be applied to, to helping achieve the goal. I guess I have a question um, as to when this organization of uh, passionate voters um, organizing around um, uh, an initiative to end gerrymandering uh, took on this name of voters, not politicians, and uh, turned into this very uh, legitimate and um, uh, impactful organization. What was that moment for you? Yeah, well, so Facebook post happened, went to work, talked to my coworker, Kelly Schalter, and was like, oh my gosh, should we really do this? And she was like, oh my gosh, yes, we should. <laughs> so we made a plan to call each other after work. Um, and that's when we started making committees. We're like, okay, we've got to organize people. And we were like, we guessed. We were like, how do we, what political campaign need? We're like, probably a legal team and probably like a fundraising team and an education team and an outreach team that can talk to other organizations. We, came up with like seven or eight different ideas for like teams. And then we asked people who could help lead those teams and who wanted to be on those teams. And it kind of sprung from there. Or then we were making the action plan together, keeping everybody informed, but making sure input could be given from every team. And that if you just generally wanted to watch, you could just be in the Facebook group. Well, once we started figuring out the realities of, okay, if we want to take action, we have to actually like file a ballot question committee. That's like the legal entity you have to do. And Part of the reason why you do that in Michigan is so that you can actually, so that the people of Michigan can track how much money is being spent and by who. Um, so it, it makes sense that it's there, but again, it's just a little complicated if you're an everyday citizen and you don't know what that is. But when we're doing that, you know, there was this moment where on the ballot question committee forum, you have to have a treasurer. And all up until that time, I didn't, I was like refusing to be a leader or whatever. But for that, that meant that if that organization got sued, they needed to be able to hold somebody liable. And that's when it got very real. 
when I was like, okay, am I going to talk to my partner about how <laughs> our mortgage might be on the line <laughs> if I screw this up and, and put myself as this treasurer? And also, or also, am I going to have to ask somebody else to have to do that? Um, what does that look like? And, and that was kind of one of the first moments where it was like, how much do I believe in this? And, and how much am I personally willing to, I guess, put on the line for these strangers that I just met online, but in the good faith of like, if we don't, if we can't do this, then we can't, uh, if we, if we can't even do this, put somebody down who can be liable, then like, how will we ever actually achieve our goals? We actually legally can't. And that was one of the most real moments. And then the second one was, um, you can then end up creating like a 501c3 or a 501c4, a nonprofit organization, so that then that can be more of the legal entity. And when starting that, we got to choose incorporators. And I really looked around our volunteers and thought like, if, first of all, I knew from the very beginning, it couldn't just be me that was making it happen. And there were really three women who had stepped up to the plate. Um, Nancy Wing, who's in charge of voting politicians now, Jamie Lyonzetti, who was our field director, and Amelia Keelone, who was our um, communications volunteer. We were all volunteers. And like really the four of us had been meeting every single day throughout the holidays to like try and organize these hundreds people and we got to have this moment where we I asked them to be the fellow incorporators of, of voters and politicians and that was just another really surreal moment where I was like this isn't my day job <laughs> like this isn't anything I would have ever thought I was doing I literally met these people a couple months ago but we're gonna like write down and take this stand together that like we believe in the people of Michigan and that's what we're fighting for it was a very powerful moment and I think uh and that's really I think the when it went from just like a, okay, we could do this, but like also if I just don't check social media for a week, like nobody knows where I live and they don't have my phone number. So I could just ghost, basically ghost to my own Facebook post. Um, but it became a like, nope, I'm going to like formally commit, quote unquote, to really trying to make this happen. So those moments of uh, almost, uh, moments of testing, it seems like when you said you were going to be held legally liable, you had to be some sort of face for this emerging group. There are undoubtedly so many tests like those, if not similar in magnitude, but at least similar in that idea of, should I continue? Is this what I'm supposed to be doing? How do regular people who are beginning to enter the political sphere also emulate that drive? Whether or not the moment is as big as being held legally liable or if it's just about should I answer this text today? <laughs> yeah, I think it's a really important question. And actually in Michigan, uh, I don't know if this is a spoiler alert or not, but we did pass the initiative and we now have our independent commission, which is so exciting. And I actually keep thinking about the commissioners a lot because they probably applied thinking one thing, then their name gets narrowed down, then they start getting like interviewed by people and now they're a public face. I think they probably also had to have every single step of the moment being like, okay, this is a little more real. I think for me, what it always came down to was, first of all, you always have to look out for yourself and what's healthy for you. But there was also this feeling of what can I, at the end of the day, what will I feel like I can live with myself about? That was probably a very weird, weirdly worded question. But what I mean is like, at the end of the day, could I still feel happy with myself if I knew I could have tried to do something, but I backed up because I was scared I was going to look bad. 
or I backed out because it was scary and really stressful, or I backed out because I didn't want people to like look at who I was and criticize me on newspaper articles in the comment section, which wasn't fun, <laughs> but, but, you know, was really one of those moments where it would have been okay if I backed away. But for me personally, by checking in and kind of saying like, what is more important? That was how I got through it. I just kept thinking about, you know, in 2021, no matter what happens, the lines are going to get redrawn and they can either get redrawn in a way that I know will lead to 10 years worth of elections that are not going to represent the people or maybe, and it's a slim maybe, especially when we were first getting started, maybe like thousands of us can come together to make it so that it's a system that actually will reflect the will of the voters. And if that's possible, it's not just for the next 10 years, we're amending the constitution. So until it gets amended again, like generations of Michigan voters will now have a fair system that they're participating in and their votes will count that much more because I wasn't afraid in this moment. And really trying to put it in perspective that way, which maybe seems like a little too historical or whatever, but I mean, I think everything that you're choosing to fight for, whether you're at the very center of it or not, that is the difference. You're, you're fighting for it because it's really important and it is really big and it does matter. Um, and and sometimes you look silly while doing it or people harass you or whatever, but for me, it was always worth it thinking about like, it is this much less likely that another Flint water crisis will happen. That's incredible, Katie. And I think on this topic of fear versus hope, um, maybe we can talk a little bit about how um, the proposition was challenged uh, at the Supreme Court of Michigan, right? So when that court case was happening, um, what were your general feelings? And did you um, go through, did you start to lose hope in that moment? Yeah. So we knew from the pretty early on, um, some of the first advice I was getting was, you know, that whatever proposal you do, it's going to get challenged in the courts and it's probably going to be thrown away. I was hearing that all of the time. This was a, a political tactic that at the time I didn't realize because I hadn't been involved in political campaigns, but I found out quickly the political tactic often, another way to subvert the will of the people is to just sue a ballot initiative and try and say that it legally shouldn't be able to even be a ballot initiative, that there's some technicality on, on like literally even one time it was the font size that was used on a petition and they tried to throw it out. The font size and they had to like go back to like Microsoft and like verify where this font came from, from literally a hundred years ago. It's crazy. Um, or I think 60 years ago for that. Um, so we knew that was going to happen. I was in these town halls uh, for us. Traditionally, maybe you have language written first, but for us, we really wanted the people of Michigan writing this language. So we went and did these town halls across our state, 33 and 33 days, where we talked about redistricting, what it looked like in other states, and then really dove into some of the details of what would we want a system to look like here in Michigan. There's this Q&A part that I did every time, and in almost every single town hall, somebody would stand up and say, you know, the courts are rigged and we're going to get thrown out anyways. So I was expecting it. Um, and then a newspaper article came out saying that our language was unconstitutional, even though we didn't have language written yet. But it was written by the, this article um, informed by the opposition. And I was like, well, that's interesting. We don't have anything for you to say is illegal yet. So we knew that was coming. Um, but the thing that did change once we got to the court is the person who was bringing the lawsuit, one of the judges, one of the Michigan Supreme Court judges ended up saying, hey, Technically, you know, there might be a conflict of interest, but I'm letting you know, I don't think it's a conflict of interest. I wanted to disclose that. That conflict of interest was 
that the person who was bringing the lawsuit, his wife had worked for four of the seven Supreme Court justices as their treasurer for their, for their reelection campaign. So there are four uh, Republican justices. She had worked for all four and then, um, or wait, five, I think we have seven. So five, sorry, five Republicans. So she had worked for all five and then two, uh, the two Democrats she had not worked for. And that was like one of these moments where you're like, really? <laughs> and the person who brought the lawsuit, they were actually him and then the wife uh, were actually the people who had done the gerrymandered lines. Like they were some of the consultants in the room who ended up coming up with these lines. So this man who, who was a new justice, she was just about to be reelected. She's saying, hey, I want you to know that there's this conflict of interest, but I'm also saying, I think I can rule impartially either way. But me being a citizen who's never had to have a case in front of the Michigan Supreme Court that I was a part of, you know, what do you do in that situation? And honestly, that was one of the moments where I just kind of felt like, how do I have faith in the system when like, I know there's so many clear conflicts of interest. And then a newspaper story came out about that. She was getting pressure from the political party that if she didn't rule in the way that they wanted her to, she wouldn't be reelected to the Supreme Court. Michigan has this backwards rule where even though Supreme Court justices run as nonpartisan um, appointees, they have to be elected by a political party in order to run, like very backwards. Uh, and she might not be nominated to run again, basically. So again, you see all of this personal reason why this justice probably, without even looking at the constitution, might be interested in wanting to not rule this way, but you really had to leave it up to the system. And and that was one of those moments. I called my lawyer and he said, I don't know what this means. I don't know why she told us. I don't know if he's asking us to refuse her or not. You know, she's a new justice. We don't know how she rules. We only have this, you know, few other cases she's done. He's like, and I really think that we probably have less than a 50 chance to win. And that was a moment where I was like, whoo. And of course, you have thousands of people. I was very dedicated to being transparent, wanting to make sure everybody knew the information that I knew as we knew it. But I really also knew the power of when you're in a leadership position, you need to tell people what they can do. It's not that we can never do nothing. So we ended up thinking about, okay, well, we can show up. We can show that we are real people that are going to be impacted it, who have fought for this. And this Supreme Court case ruling was actually just to let us be on the ballot. We didn't even know if 50% of the people were going to vote yes for it yet or not. It was just saying we gathered the signatures and we're allowed to mend our constitution based on redistricting. Uh, and the argument against it was basically that redistricting is too complicated for everyday people to amend. They, they couldn't possibly know what to change. Uh, and so we showed up and I, I got to talk to one of the justices after the fact and they ended up ruling in our favor. Yay. Um, and that justice said the only day the Michigan Supreme Court was filled was the day we heard the redistricting proposal. And don't think we didn't notice. And that like really left a huge impact on me. I mean, in the moment, it was very scary. You didn't know what you could do. And honestly, it was it was probably the largest leap of like faith around like, will the political, can the political system work in the way it was intended to? Which means that it makes rulings based on what our state constitution says, not on what political influence does. That's such an incredibly powerful image. And the fact that the Supreme Court justices of Michigan noticed speaks to the power of showing up, showing interest, being actively engaged in democratic reform. I think that um, I think that I'm also really stuck on that idea that of, of being challenged on font size, basically, 
challenged by claims of little merits that are propped by networks of powerful people who help elect those who are in power. How much of your opposition, opposition to these, you know, these, this movement that is gaining power to, for, for democracy, basically, how much of this opposition felt like challenge on font size? Was there any merit to it at any point? A lot of it felt like um, it was it was the meritless. I would say the the font size that you didn't fill out the right form on the right day. The looking for a technicality. Um, it was interesting watching the the opposition's argument evolve over time. At first, it was just a complete denial that gerrymandering was real, um, and then a, a a separate court case that was against the current map in Michigan came out where a bunch of emails were revealed by those people saying gerrymandering wasn't real, talking about how they were gerrymandering the state. And that argument kind of got dismissed. And, and then it went more to, okay, maybe it's an issue. It's not really an issue. It's more that like Democrats just can't run good elections. And in the past, Republicans couldn't run good elections. Uh, and so it's kind of not real. It's kind of real. But also this isn't the right solution. So like one of the attack ads actually said like, this proposal is over 3,200 words. Like just not liking how many words are in a proposal seems like a, a weak kind of meritless attack. It's more to get people to feel like, oh, we really shouldn't be the ones amending our constitution. I think they, they could have tried to dig into, oh, this would be an actual alternative that we like better. They could have maybe tried to do that. They didn't though. But for the most part, it felt really non-substantial. Also, um, our opposition spent really late in the campaign, which I think is just something that, again, we were told would probably happen. But when you've been working on something for two years and you still haven't seen a lot of opposition, you're kind of like, eh, is it really going to happen? And overnight, like I think it was five million dollars was spent on a bunch of radio ads, TV ads. And we actually got 17 radio stations to take those ads down because they had direct lies in them. They had. But the problem is they got aired before we could file something against it saying, hey, this has direct misinformation, direct lies that isn't factual, and you remove them. But people still already got to hear that. And that was one of the like lower points for me too, where I just kind of was like, you know, you could totally think this is not a good idea. You can try and defend the status quo that, you know, legislators sh legislator should be able to draw these lines and not people instead. But instead you went for literally just trying to confuse people and lie to them. And that's what was kind of one of those we've got to change this system even beyond just the redistricting part, but literally how campaigns are run and like what you legally can do. Cause it was just very, very frustrating, very eye opening. And, and it also on the back front, what was kind of disheartening about it is our polling, you know, and talking to people before any opposition happened, you know, the vast majority, like well over 73, 74, 75% of people all were like, yep, 100%, I'm good to go. And the rest of people were pretty much like, I haven't heard enough about this issue to make up my mind yet. And as soon as that opposition started, as soon as they started making it uh, about Democrats versus Republicans, instead of just voters being able to draw these lines instead of politicians, that's when our polling started dropping, which is really unfortunate. That's an interesting uh, uh, dilemma, right? That um, I guess members of one party uh, to give their party a short-term uh, win or uh, to put them in power for the next four years, they'll kind of sacrifice their um, uh, right to vote or uh, the value of their vote. 
Um, and how do you combat that? Um, I think something similar happened in Virginia where um, the uh, before passing the amendment um, for redistricting reform, they faced a lot of opposition from Democrats who would be in power to draw their own lines the next term. Yeah, I uh, and I would say the other sad thing that we saw in this last cycle is you saw places like Oklahoma or I'm sorry, Arkansas and North Dakota that had their ballot initiatives taken off for not exactly a comma or a font size, but very similar like uh, procedural reasons um, that the petitions weren't filed the right way, not that they didn't have enough petitions, whatever. Um, what was interesting, though, is and I think is an important thing for all of us. I mean, we all probably know this, but I don't know. Until I was in it, I didn't think about it enough, I guess. How politicians acted and what politicians said and their motivations are so different than everyday people's. Like when we went and talked to people in the street, like even if they were um, with the party that was being benefited from the system, they're like, yeah, but it doesn't matter who's in power. We're always still screwed. <laughs> like the amount of times I heard that across Michigan. And they were like, I want a system that really is about us, the people. I was at the... Um, Republican convention in Michigan where they laid out an ad that actually was personally attacking me. It was a very bizarre thing to like be a voter who was there and then also have a detect ad that then had my face on it. I was like, this is weird. I didn't know this was going to happen. And there was this guy really angry who came up to me afterwards and we ended up talking and I was able to like show him the constitutional language, show us what the proposal actually had in it. And he was like, well, that's what I want. And I was like, yeah, I thought, I hope so. That's great. I'm glad to hear that. And we have this conversation about why the party would try and mislead voters, even though it's what he felt like the principles were for why he was voting that way. Um, and I think that, you know, some people sign up to volunteer for partisan reasons, but actually the vast majority were just around wanting a, a democratic institution um, that was going to work the way it was intended, that was going to be about making sure people could vote however they wanted without it mattering who they voted for and, and that elections should be decided by voters. That's a very strong, strong sentiment. So it's definitely something you need to talk about and be able to talk about. But I think sometimes in the reform space, when I hear other people running campaigns, talking about this, give so much more weight to the fact that they think people are just going to be so self-interested that they put their own short-term game over the longer term system. I would just note that I think when people are in office or when there's special interests pushing them to who have a lot of power, yes, I do think that that's the case. Like our lawmakers have a lot more incentives to feel that way. For everyday Americans, I think a lot of us realize that when the system doesn't work for all of us, it, it doesn't work for me either. So I think that, um, I think this, this, uh, this conversation leads really well into the idea that there's a disconnect between party and people. And so that is, from my understanding, the primary interest and the drive behind your new organization, the people. So why did you start the people according to these, to these principles of, of community across political divisiveness? For a couple of reasons. One of the reasons was navigating the political process in Michigan, as we've discussed already today, was really hard. And I feel like I happened to have the right people that I happened to meet at the right time who had the right skills where we successfully navigated it. But there's probably like 40 to 70 different times in that process where I think if we just wouldn't have happened to have the right person who knew enough to help make sure that we 
did file paperwork at the right time or did use the right font size. I mean, I think that could have been missed so easily. And I'm just very aware of that, that thankfully we had the right combination, but I totally understand why so many people have tried to do something similar, but failed or gotten thrown out in a technicality. It's so easy to do. Um, and that bothered me. It really bothered me. I mean, I was really grateful again for us, but it really bothered me that somebody could have just as much passion, have just as many people excited about it, still fail just because they didn't have the right person with the right amount of like political knowledge with volunteering for them. Um, so I wanted to be able to pay the lessons that we learned, the organizing skills that we learned. I wanted to pay that forward to other people trying to make change. Um, the other thing is I really noticed that in the reform community, a genuine space for nonpartisanship, where you can have a model where people come together and they talk about what they have in common and what they agree they no longer want to accept, like they no longer want voters, or I'm sorry, politicians choosing who their voters are and what they do want are uh, voters being able to have more power in the system. When you could focus on those similarities, that really did open a, a whole new dynamic. Um, including uh, a new way to organize and, and more people that are really turned off by the us versus them conversations or the way political ads or a lot of political campaigns are run. Like a lot of people don't want to volunteer for them because that's all they think it is. And this offered another alternative. Uh, and lastly, I would just say working in the nonpartisan space, there's also not a lot of nonpartisan vendors. And what I mean by that is like there's or there's places for political campaigns where you go and give donations. And there's like the Republican platform to, for doing that. And there's the Democrat platform for doing it. But if you just want a nonpartisan platform, there's really not a lot of options. Or if there are, they aren't really well designed and run because there was 14, what, billion dollars just spent in the previous election. And I, I would guess that basically all 14 billion was either spent building the Democrat or the Republican infrastructure, not the nonpartisan infrastructure. So we created tools. I mean, we had volunteers who created databases. They created manuals. They created um, uh, uh, like online platforms for people to communicate together. And I just wanted a way to pay that forward too, to make it that much more easy, regardless of what state you live in, to be able to one, meet other people who also are passionate and want to figure out how to do something, two, actually navigate the political process, and three, be able to do that in a nonpartisan way that keeps it focused on people um, and not political parties or uh, the status quo. Because again, I think it's fine if you choose to do that, just there's a lot of other places you can go for that help. Um, and that's yeah, what a lot of my motivation was. And it's been so cool to just, I think I was a little scared of like, oh, was this just a thing in Michigan? Was it just how Michigan people felt? And then all I have seen is that there are people across this country who also are having those moments of like, am I the only one who cares about wanting to fix the system for everybody? And thankfully, we're finding more and more of those people who want to then connect and be able to actually make change together. I really admire that initiative, Katie. I think especially um, within a political climate like we see today, uh, nonpartisanship and um, coming together is something that we all need as a country. And I guess um, one thing um, that stands out to me uh through our conversation is this idea of political activism and um, being politically involved and being optimistic. So how do you combat the mindset of political apathy that, okay, politics is a machine and it's not um, something that the common people can turn over? And have you ever felt, felt that cynicism yourself and how do you combat it? 
So when we talk about like political powerhouses um, in Michigan, there is a family, they're called the DeVos family. Um, and they have a lot of money. They've controlled basically politics in Michigan for several decades. And their consultants are some of the ones who drew the lines for gerrymandered lines. Knowing that you have this millionaire funding the opposition when you've got like $5,000 in your bank account is terrifying. Like it is like, how the heck do we ever win? Like they've got more money. They've like are pros at doing this. We've never done this before. Uh, the day that we announced like publicly, like one of their um, consultants wrote an op-ed against me personally, even though I had never done anything political, like it got it published in the Detroit News. I was like, oh my gosh, this is like really scary and big and huge. I just like, I know that there's bigger fights than that, but it felt really, really big. Like it was very much like how mm-hmm. the heck did we ever win? But at the same time, at the risk of sounding very cheesy, mm-hmm. I can't help but like remember being the little fourth grader or fifth grader learning about America and learning about how Great Britain was this huge economic powerhouse, the most powerful country in the world. And yet like a bunch of like farmers and, and you know, other people who, who uh, were, you know, some were elite, but like literally you had to rely on like farmers and everyday people to decide to fight a war against the greatest economic superpower in the world at the time without promise of guarantee. Or if there was a guarantee, it was probably that you'd be called a traitor and killed. And yet they won. And then at another time, like black people weren't considered a, like having the eligibility to vote. And yet, despite that, because there was organizing and unfortunately because more people had to die but fought for that right, they were able to actually secure that right to vote. And same with women and just all of the other, you know, even just getting the um, Americans with Disabilities Act passed so that your participation to being able to go into a building wasn't determined on whether you're handicapped or not. Like, Like all of those fights probably shouldn't have ever been won because there was so much interest against that. There was so much interest in just maintaining the status quo. And yet as part of being Americans, we have continued, even if it's been extremely imperfectly, we have continued to create a better system, but only because people weren't too afraid to try. Only because enough people really tried to believe in the core potential of our country that what if we really did have a place that was for buy-in of the people, where the people got to decide, not the people who were in in government deciding just for us. How do we make it work for all of us? Um, And again, I know that's kind of like hokey and maybe some people are like, you know, have lots of flaws with that. But for me personally, it is something I do and have thought about is just, I have so many privileges today that I shouldn't, I wouldn't have unless somebody fought for me to be able to have them and, and be able to cast my vote, be able to live even in this country, have a credit card on my own, like all of those things, a house on my own, all those little fights that have happened. And I think that's the perspective you have to keep. None of that was overnight. None of that was just because somebody made a Facebook post back in the day. They made a carrier pigeon post. I don't know. How but, <laughs> you know, it, it really did take hard work and the ability to not give up. And that's one of the other things I learned in Michigan was we had hundreds of people thinking and living and breathing this every single day. And our opposition, even though they cared and they still probably thought about it every day, they were in it because they were getting a paycheck. And they also had other things to be worried about. And we were able to out-organize them because for us, it was waking up where another Flint water crisis could happen. And for them, it was just another day at work. And that really, I mean, it's it's kind of crappy when you think of that and then how people just 
pass laws that they don't realize the impact that they have on other people in their community. But at the same time, we think it leaves a really big opportunity for when we are organized, for when we do care. Maybe it's not the absolute first time that we try, but if we keep trying, we keep trying, we can win out. It's such a beautiful mindset, I think, to persevere, to recall the farmers and the farmers of America who stood up to a Goliath, the everyday people who rise up and attend a Supreme Court hearing, as you were talking about earlier. It's it's a beautiful mindset, a wonderful mindset, and an important mindset, I, I think. And so I hear so much hope and optimism that I'm, I'm, that I really would love to hear the answer to, to this question. And one that Sarija and I have been brainstorming as something to inspire a closing to a, a, any interview we might have with a guest. And that is, what does democracy mean to you? I think democracy, and I'll, I'll take it more in the context of like American democracy, American democracy, democratic republic, I think uh, it's our way of having a government. Okay, this is gonna, I'm just gonna say it and I'll probably say more. Okay. <laughs> My background in, in sustainability, so just bear with me. environment, study of systems. Life in general, the only reason life has been able to continue and to survive is because it evolves and changes over time. It adapts to the weather, it adapts to other predators that are coming in, and government needs to be able to do that too. And I feel like democracy offers the hope that you can create a system that can change over time, that can be flexible, yet still be an institution with which people can build trust and they can build support and they can create a relationship with. Yet it's not dependent on one lineage. It's not dependent on one family bloodline continuing or the hopes that one person is just going to act selflessly. It's actually dependent on our ecosystem of people who are depending on a government who've decided, hey, we want to live together and we see benefit in that and we want to make sure that we can have prosperity for our people and all of that. And I and I think that democracy is that that opportunity, it's not a promise, it's an opportunity for if people take that seriously, if people decide to participate, if we want to keep it, I think is how you guys open this power, uh, we have the actual chance to. And it's not just dependent on one person, but it's also that works both ways. It's not dependent on one person just acting really good, but it's also dependent on not just one person participating. It's dependent on on millions participating. Um, and, and I think that's a really cool responsibility and a really cool way that maybe cool is not the right word, but I think it's a really inspiring thought and exercise of really seeing if people deserve to quote unquote govern themselves, be able to coexist and, and still look out for the greater good as well as for um, uh, themselves. I think that's what democracy kind of means to me, the opportunity of self-government and uh, the opportunity of hopefully creating something that can evolve and change over time, just as our technology does. And just as we, as people do. I think that opportunity you're talking about, that opportunity to see if people are deserving of governing themselves is is something that we should aim to fulfill and prove every day. And I'm and the reason we were so hopeful about you coming on and so grateful that you did come on 
is that you you proved it with your work in in Michigan and you and you prove it now with your position uh, with the people. Yeah, it was I think about that a lot actually. That's probably the number one thing that if I'm having a really bad day, I think back to the fact that again, if I had just made a Facebook post and nobody responded, I wouldn't have done anything about it. But that now after at least trying to put it out there of like, hey, I kind of want to change the world. Do you guys want to change the world too? I now know thousands of people and like a person in every single county of Michigan who dedicated their time and their energy and their money and their creativity without any guarantee. They donated all of that to just trying to make the world be a better place and our democracy a more fair place for generations to come. And they were willing to do that even though we were strangers, even though, again, everybody was telling us from the media to the opposition that it was not a worthwhile effort. And the fact that I live in a state where so many people would show up, that uh, over 428,000 people would put their name on a petition, where over 2.5 million people would vote yes for a different future. I mean, that is powerful. And and I don't forget that now, even when I am feeling alone or kind of like, oh, my gosh, it just feels like the quote unquote bad is so overwhelming in the world. Like, no, it's not. I think we just have to recognize the ways that we do have power and the ability that we can connect with each other to fight for those things that we believe. That's incredible, Katie. And I'd like to wrap this up by saying um, thank you for uh, interviewing with us. You've made an incredible um, addition to our podcast. Thank you so much. Thank you guys for the opportunity. I can't wait. can't wait. And thanks to you, listener, for joining us today. This has been If We Can Keep It, a podcast for the Republic. See you next time.